Today we're going to be uh, in Hebrews 10, uh, carrying on with verses 19 through 25. Um, and when I was a kid, I was a terribly bad loser, uh, meaning I was not good at losing things. And when I was confronted with something that I was either bad at or I didn't have any desire to be get good at, if I enjoyed something or I enjoyed a sport, then I may give it a shot. But if I didn't like it at all, if I was losing, I would just be fed up and quit. I was the kid who would flip the board games, you know what I'm talking about? I'd be like playing sorry, and I was the kid, sorry, and I'd flip it right over because I was losing. I could not stand it. And this set up an unhealthy pattern for me in my life. And when things would get hard, what I wanted to do was hit the eject button. I wanted to retreat from difficulty. Thankfully, I was blessed uh, growing up with good uh, friends and family and parents who, who called me out on that, who challenged me and walked with me through that path of maturation over the years of my life. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit worked a lot and grew me in those struggles. That was one of many. That's just one example. But one thing I've come to terms with is I still, to this day, have a deep, deep need for people in my life to encourage me in the areas that I struggle with now, people who remind me of who I am in Christ, people who constantly stir my affections for following Jesus in the tough times and the good times. Today we get to one of my favorite passages in Hebrews, a passage that grounds us in our faith, lays a foundation for what we are to hold on to in Christ and exhorts us with a very clear path forward, a very clear path forward how to walk as followers of Christ with one another. Shows us how to be in community in order to grow in maturity in Christ, something we all need to continue to grow in. And what I would want most from our time today, if anything, if you get anything out of this, is to see that coming together in Christian community participating in mutual fellowship, care, and encouragement is one of the best things you can do for your soul and for the soul and good of others, especially when we're confronted with difficult situations. And even more than that, most importantly, it brings so much glory to Christ. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to be reading today Hebrews 10, chapter Chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, we have extra ones on your way out. Please grab one there by the connection table. That's our gift for you. We'd love for you to dive into that and to learn and be in God's word. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful that uh, we can come together and that we have the opportunity to worship you, uh, even in the midst of this 
um, pandemic, and I just ask today that your Holy Spirit would be working mightily in our hearts, um, and you would just be uh, stirring our affections for you, and also helping us uh, figure out ways to stir love and good works in one another, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So there's a lot in this passage, um, and I'm going to touch on uh, mostly three main points that I believe clarify a summation of how we are able to live in Christ now based on his finished work. So first we're going to talk about the fact that we're able to draw near to God confidently in worship. And then next we're going to going to talk about how we're able to hold fast to our Christian confession and hope. And lastly, where we'll spend a good deal of our time too, is this fact that we have a great grace of being able to draw near to one another in mutual love, care, and encouragement. And by the means of coming together, our drawing near to God and holding fast in this life is strengthened for our good and God is greatly clarified. So that's the direction that we're going today. Uh, If you remember back all the way to chapter 4, it's been a while, in verses 14 and 16, you will see a chunk of Scripture that is very similar to what we have today in this passage. And the passage in chapter 4 was beginning this multi-chapter discourse on this appointment and work of Christ as our high priest. And in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, this Discourse is ended. But it does way more than just restate what we have already seen. It encourages us in very practical ways to practical action based on all that we've discussed about the fact that Christ is both our perfect sacrifice and our great high priest. Because of all what we've been shown about what Christ has accomplished, we have confidence now to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There has been a ton of Old Testament referencing, looking back to the priesthood of the Israelites, to the symbolism of the tabernacle, etc. And here we see even just a few more overarching statements on what this now means for us on this side of the finished life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So unlike the old priesthood, where sacrifices had to be made continuously, there is now a new way, we're told, a new way into the very presence of God has been opened through Christ. And this way is not just described as a new way, but also a living way. Christ, although he stood in our place for our sins, and he died. He did not remain dead. Amen? He rose again and now is very much our ever-living way to God. Jesus describes this himself in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Christ now continues to be this living way. And in verse 20, it mentions the way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh. This curtain is an allusion to the the veil that separated the outer and the inner rooms of the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And before Christ's sacrifice, 
Only the high priest, as we've talked about before, only the high priest could ever go into the inner room behind the veil, into the very presence of God. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 15, verse 38, it describes that at the time of Christ's death, when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The writer of Hebrews is weaving this powerful symbolism of the temple being or the temple curtain being torn in two and explaining that the presence of God that we now have access to and the way to God was made possible and open because the the flesh of Jesus Christ was rent asunder as one commentator puts it. it means it was torn for us just like the curtain was because of what Christ has done because he is our great high priest, the way to God is thrown wide open. God has unveiled himself to us through this work of Jesus. And because of these things, we now can confidently draw near to God. And it doesn't have to be just a lighthearted, nonchalant approaching. This confident entry into the presence of God is ours to take on fully. We don't have stipulations and tightly guarded restrictions now. The way is thrown wide open. Those who have the privilege to draw near now are not just a select few. There is no fence in the way. However, in order to draw near, we must do this, it says, in full assurance of faith. The author goes on and mentions with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This picture of our hearts being sprinkled clean is a reference back to Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, where we were at just a few weeks ago which points back to the Old Testament act of sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. It's, it's talking about uh, a sacrifice to sanctify for the purifications of the flesh. And it goes on to say, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The writer of Hebrews is pointing to the reasons why we can draw near in full assurance. The age of restoration, of God's restoring his people to himself is upon us and it's been ushered in because of the blood of Christ. In the book of Ezekiel, Back in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Uncleanness is, excuse me, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God has now brought us to this time, 
that was prophesied in Ezekiel. The whole Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ. God is giving people new hearts, and the Holy Spirit is in those who repent of their sin and believe in what Jesus Christ has done. This verse in Hebrews is saying, because of this inward renewal, and also because of this outward symbol of that inward renewal, our bodies being washed with pure water, most likely referring to Christian baptism, we can go to God with a full assurance of faith. It's important to remember that baptism does not save us, okay? This author is just reminding us that we have been inwardly changed, and you have expressed that. You can go with full assurance, with all the confidence in the world. And God bids us come. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to know him, to commune with him, to dwell with him, to experience him now, and to experience the fullness of life with him that he offers. And he offers that today. Maybe if you've never even experienced that, today he offers that for the first time if you haven't put your faith in him. He wants you to know him, to draw near to him. And we often tread very cautiously when we think about this idea of going into the presence of God, receiving this mercy that has been shown to us in Christ fully and resting in that. Ultimately, apart from Christ, we all are slowly or quickly literally suffocating in our attempts to be right before God. When we try to work our way or we just completely dismiss him, we waste away, a lot of the times without even knowing it. And I took this imagery from a book uh, called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's, it's a book that's going around a lot right now. It's fantastic. I recommend it. Um, but imagine that you're a parent and your child is suffocating for oxygen. Or imagine someone that you deeply care about is floundering for air if you don't have a child. And you have an oxygen tank and you give it to them. Would you want them to draw on that oxygen in a measured way? Put it on your head, breathe in deeply. Nice and easy. No. You would want them to be sucking that back taking it in fully. And this is what God wants us to do when we come into his presence. He has offered us Christ so that we can take him up on his resources fully and drawing near to him, to resting in his mercies. Christ has opened up a new and living way, and he grants us the ability to have hearts full of faith not just in order for us to draw near at some later point, but so that we can do that now, today, fully. So as we move forward in unpacking more of these exhortations that are here in this passage, I want to bring something just quickly to our attention that I think is worth noting. Uh, in our culture, more so in my generation uh, and and younger, I think um, there's this idea that's been given to us that commands and rules uh, are just really there to show us who's in control. Yes, they might often have benefits, but when someone comes and commands something from you, you get skeptical. You're like, ah, this is just a control thing, an authority trip, a power play. 
The world as we live in it and interact with it can shape us in various ways if we're not careful. We're picking up on things and we're conditioned to hear that commands even in the Bible are something that we just need to submit to so we can find some approval. And if we don't, then we'll be met with disapproval or worse if we, uh, we will simply just ignore them because we just don't care because we think it's stupid. That's a stupid rule. I'm not going to follow that. But God gives us commands for a much, much deeper reason. Much deeper reason than just having us come in half-hearted submission. He doesn't need to just prove control. He's in control, spoiler alert. He doesn't have to prove it. God gives us commands so we may actually live in a way that is good for us. On our own, we will get lost. Our hearts are deceptive. Sin in our lives is present. And we need the Lord to help us to live as he originally intended us to live in his presence. And his commands are here in place for his glory, absolutely, but also for our joy, our benefit. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13 says this, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which, emphasis mine, I am commanding you today for your good. God is glorified, and we experience abundant joy when we follow Christ and obey his commandments. Not to earn righteousness. Again, I want to clarify that. We've already been given that righteousness if you're in Christ. He gives them to you to say, hey, this is for your good. It may not always be evident immediately, but I promise you, God will make good on his promise that his commands are for our joy. So being told to draw near to God is for our good. Draw near to him with worship in all of your life, not just on Sunday morning. Draw near by communing with him in Bible reading and prayer. Draw near to him in every moment of your life, whether it's good or it's bad. And do this, do this knowing that he gives us a lot of joy when we follow him. We've read that we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. This author is now gonna continue to build on these exhortations and give us more and more commands to follow for our good. So now we're told, hold fast. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here, we see we are constantly to be reminded of what we confess, namely the gospel, the good news that we have not been left alone in our sin, the good news that we do in fact have a way to be reconciled and restored back to God through Jesus Christ as we have been just consistently being told over and over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. Sometimes it can sound old, but the reality is that we are commanded to hold fast to that. It is not old. 
Christ, our sinless sacrifice, stepped into the world to accomplish the life you can never accomplish and died in your place. That's what we are to hold fast to. We have great hope because we know that God's promises are as good as done. He is faithful, we're told, perfectly faithful. We never move past these foundational truths. This is what we are called to hold fast to, what we're anchored in, that anchor for our soul. That means that we should never be tempted to think, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of over the whole gospel thing. We don't move past that. Yes, we absolutely continue to grow in more and more knowledge of the Lord and how we are to live. We grow in maturity, but we should constantly, constantly be reminded of this fact that God is so holy and we on our own are so sinful, but in his mercy sent his son to die for us so that we can be reconciled back to him as those, just like if you're in our CGs right now and you're going through the gospel-centered life, that picture of God's holiness and your sinfulness growing in your life makes the cross loom larger and larger. That's the foundational truth that we are called to hold on to, to always go back to, to be reminded of. God wants us to draw near to him and to hold fast to these tenets of our faith. In the context that he has given us to live this life out as sons and daughters of God united to Christ by the Holy Spirit is in the context of the church community, Christian community. Our God is Trinitarian, meaning God has existed in perfect community, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. Three persons, one God, in a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend in our finite minds. But we are told in Genesis that we are created in the image of God. And just like God has existed in relationship for all time, we are created to exist in relationship and community as well. We talk about community a lot. You hear that word thrown around uh, in our church, uh, in church culture sometimes, even just in the world at large. I was watching the World Series last night and there was uh, a Peloton commercial. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Peloton, but it's like a bicycle thing, community, and that's literally what they advertised. They were, they were showing all these people around the world and they're like, millions of users, one community by Peloton. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. So they're advertising community. You can find community, you know, in many different areas. But community in the church, community in Christ, participation in the body of Christ is an altogether very different community. But what makes it distinct? What gives it this flavor of being considered Christian community? This text lays it out in a very practical way after saying that you're all united into the church by what Christ has done. He says, this is also what it should look like very practically. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's a lot of things that we could pull from this passage, but I'm gonna focus 
on just a couple of them. Uh, if you remember, God gives us these commandments for our joy. So as we're thinking about practical implications of living in community, remember that. There is a reason why we are told to approach the church and one another in this way. When you are saved, when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, you are saved into a body. That's the imagery we get in Ephesians 4, this imagery of God's people being united in the body of Christ. Christ is our head, and we are members of the same body. This is a global community, but it's expressed locally in our churches. And Jesus Christ speaks about the unity and love of his people towards one another being a marker that they are actually followers of him. When he's talking to his disciples, he says, people are going to know you follow me by the way you love one another. So we are designed to flourish together the most in the context of being in each other's lives. So that's why we are told fairly firmly, do not neglect to meet. Neglecting to meet is harmful for your faith and for the unity of the church in general. One reason is because we all have blind spots. We all need those people in our lives, like I was mentioning at the beginning. We have blind spots, right? I'm a game board flipper, bad loser. Someone needs to tell me that. We need people who can come and point us back to our life in Christ. So one thing I want to make clear, one reason we can't neglect to meet is that it isolates us from allowing people to speak into our lives. Does God speak to us individually? Absolutely. But has God clearly designed us for speaking the truth and love to one another, for our good and to be a witness for his glory to the world around us? Yes. That's the way, the pattern we see throughout the scriptures that he works the most. In my life and experience, uh, I would say that the reasons why I shy away from being in community at times is because I'm either struggling with something that I don't really want others to know about, or I'm just not feeling personally fulfilled for one reason or another. Would it be fair to say this is a common experience out there? When we want to shy away, it probably falls into one of those two camps. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against all sound judgment. And it goes on in verse two to say, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When we isolate ourselves, most often it is because we seek our own desire, most often. God knows this, so he tells us, hey, don't neglect to meet. That's why we must stress our gathering together. And I'm not talking just Sundays, but throughout the week with one another. In fact, that is most likely what this chunk of scripture is talking about is the meeting that we do even in between Sundays. When we neglect to meet, we miss an opportunity to have a space for the Lord to bring about sanctification in our lives. 
But I want to move now past this more negative argument of why we should not neglect to meet and move towards a more other-focused standpoint. And that is when we gather together, we have the opportunity to be used by God to accomplish what we are told we ought to when we gather, meaning our approach to gathering. What I mean is our approach to gathering as we grow will be less focused on I, less focused on what I get out of it, and more and more focused on what others will be getting out of it. Notice that the mutual and communal aspect of these verses is very present. When we read about encouraging one another and stirring up to love and good works, it is so tempting to think about the ways in which this is happening to me, right? We start thinking about, well, I want people to be loving me and stirring me up to good works. But the burden is really on us all to be the ones who are the initiators of this encouraging and stirring up. In verse 24, it says, let us consider. I think that this implies that there is uh, some thought going into this, some thought going into how we can encourage one another, how we can stir up love and good works in one another. It is very radically others-focused. I would say now more than ever, we have to really wrestle with these commands of communal life that God has given us because it's no surprise that there's a lot of division in our world, a lot of division all around us, and it's tempting for this to creep in. It can be so wearing on our souls, so discouraging to us. We have this temptation to go along with the divisive culture and take part in it. And I'm not advocating that we uh, don't have convictions or stand firmly on certain things, but I am advocating that we take a long and serious look at how we are seeking to engage, initially at least, in a way that is loving. Specifically in the body of Christ, how are we seeking to be characterized by a spirit of unity and not one of division? How are we seeking that out? We're called to come together to care for and encourage one another, called to stir up love and good works, to stir up affection of love for God and one another, and to encourage people to go and walk in the good works that the Lord has placed in your path. Have you ever found yourself being disgruntled with something? Maybe uh, something in the Christian community you realized that was actually just a preference or have you ever noticed that you get into this rut where more and more of your conversations are sprinkled with critique and disagreement? Or maybe you create excuses for why you don't have to do something simply because you just disagree with it and you make a bunch of excuses, but the reality is you just don't want to do it. We all have these moments, and the challenge that I think we're given here in this passage is that even if we have a serious disagreement, we take a step back, and we see where maybe we're first off base and how we can enter in in love to encourage, to stir up love and good works. This is so vital for our unity. This is how God has designed his church to administer care to one another, right? For all of us to be participants in this. 
I can speak, I think, Yes, I can speak for all the pastors and say we care very deeply and want to do as much as we can for everyone, but the reality is, is we can't do everything, and that's why we're all called to be the ones who are encouraging and loving and stirring up to good works. Maybe sometimes God is calling you to be an instrument of change in someone else's life, even if it's something that you really just don't want to join in on. Maybe God is calling you to serve somewhere because he wants to use you for the benefit of someone else. You know, what came to my mind was Redeemer Kids. There are times when I'm like, I don't really want to go into Redeemer Kids. No offense, kids. (laughs) But I am always convicted in those moments and every single time Every single time I leave that classroom on a Sunday morning, I promise you, the Lord has worked in my heart just as much as I believe he's worked in those kids' hearts. There's a lot of pain in our lives, a lot of suffering we experience, a lot of sin to be battled. But we have this opportunity, this resource to care for one another in our community, and we're called to enter into these tough places. But first we have to start looking. We have to consider where we can participate in this work and wrestle where we only focus on ourselves. In Ephesians 5, 29 and 30, it says, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Jesus Christ cherishes and nourishes the church because we are members of his body. Again, I'm gonna uh, use the book Gentle and Lowly I mentioned earlier, there's a quote in there that says, how do we care for a wounded body part? We nurse it, we bandage it, protect it, and give it time to heal. That body part isn't just a close friend, it's part of us. So with Christ and believers, we are part of him. Jesus Christ is comforted when you draw from the riches of his atoning work because his own body is getting healed. So as we draw on what Christ has done and is doing in our lives, this motivates us and calls us to come together. We get this privilege of being part of God's restorative work in one another's lives. We're part of a body. Body parts separate sometimes, and when that happens, we feel pain. If you've ever dislocated a shoulder or something, you feel feel pain. So we're called, commanded, we're called and commanded to approach one another, to to stir up to love and good works, encourage each other based on what Christ has done for us. So we meet together to be reminded of this, to be reminded of what it means to draw near to God and to encourage one another to do that very thing. To hold fast our confession to the gospel of Jesus Christ the foundational doctrines of our faith, to encourage one another to take both this command to draw near to God and hold on to these aspects of our faith, to encourage one another to do those things, to live, to display the supreme glory of God in Jesus Christ in everything we do in this divided, broken, and needy world. So meeting together is the way that we, or our meeting together, excuse me, the way 
that we approach one another is this base, this home base for our care and encouragement in our lives following Christ. So let's draw near to God and to one another as we go from this place. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful. We're thankful for this time to uh, come together, this time to be reminded of what Christ has done in his life and his death and resurrection, to be reminded that he has made a way for us to be restored back into a right relationship with you. And I pray that as we go from here, we would remember that we are able to draw near to you. I pray that we would be uh, fully assured in our faith and stand on the foundations of the gospel. And I pray that we would do all this in the context of this community, a community that encourages one another, loves one another, stirs up to love and good works. And I ask that uh, you would just grant us the grace to see how you are glorified and how we are given much joy as we follow Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.